Yeah, if this doesn't take, then it's, you know, I'm just going to go pull out my pubic hair in the other room. Well, let's do that off mic and off cam. Carl Anderson. Oh, Lance Roylo. How's it going? Are you kidding me? If it got any better, I would have to throw this entire podcast microphone out the window and just go with it. It's pretty dramatic. It is because, you know, once you've reached a place where you're like, you know what? There's uh, nothing left. It's, it's been so good. What are you going to do? <laughs> so I'm glad we're all here. And uh, Dan Fullick, um, Dan, do you want to just give us a little brief synopsis about you and your life and, you know, how you came to be in Hawaii and working for one of the preeminent um, liquor distributors in the country? Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for the throw. Um, so my name is Dan Fullick, and I manage the fine wine portfolio and fine wine sales team for Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits of Hawaii. I'm speaking here today as myself, not as a representative of that company. Okay. I don't want to go to HR. Also, um, <laughs> I, I've been with the company five years, and I've been in this position uh, pretty close to a year and a half. And in that job, I manage the portfolio, which means uh, I select what we will offer, what we will offer to sell. And then I also manage the salespeople that go out there and sell the wine. We sell exclusively to retailers and restaurants. We do not sell to the general public. We are licensed as a wholesaler only. And uh, Southern is the largest uh, wine and spirits wholesaler in the United States. We operate, last check, um, about 45 states we operate in. But we started... Um, I don't know, close to 50 years ago in Florida. Have been doing this for quite some time. I know that we were chatting about how we first met and you were a little boutique uh, wine distributor selling to my restaurant in Chicago. Um, what made you transition from, you know, radio over to spirits and wine? Well, thank you, Carl. So, <clears throat> Interesting is I was in the music business for the better part of a decade, and uh, in my 20s, it was great, and uh, I was in, always in what we called the promotion department, so it was my job uh, to put songs on the radio. I did that in the Midwest, and then went to Chicago and had a na or went to uh, New York and had a national position with Virgin Records as director of, of Top 40 Promotion. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then uh, during that time, the music business changed very quickly and and honestly <clears throat> excuse me i'm sorry hang on <clears throat> the music business was changing as uh the consumer shifted from physical purchases cds uh to digital purchases and what we saw is very quickly the acceptable price point for our product go from 16 dollars to zero and that jeez, oh, yeah that really ruined the fun so um <laughs> At the time, I was working for Virgin Records in New York, which is owned by EMI, uh, you know, a British company. And uh, overnight, EMI Corporate in London decided to merge Virgin Records and Capital Records. And with that, my entire floor, all of us got laid off. And oh, I my. 30, uh, I was 30 years old. And it what, was right at the right. Uh, this would have been oh five. Uh huh. So okay. is this the beginning? Is that the beginning of Spotify, or what? What took you guys out, really? It was um. Well, Napster was the beginning. Napster. Oh, yep. That's this right. was still in those days. Yeah. And file mm. sharing was really more prevalent, and iTunes was something new. It was mm. this new thing, and this was pre iPhone. Oh yeah, because iPhone is two thousand seven or eight, right? Seven. Like yeah. 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 So um, this was still the iPod days, if we can remember those. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so as uh, so, I guess when this would have happened, it would have been. I'm trying to think. Yeah, it was 15 years ago. It was oh five oh six. Yeah. So it, at any rate, um, I was 30 years old. Talked to my wife. We have a nice little home in Forest Hills, Queens. We're thinking about starting a family, and uh, the writing was on the wall for the music business, in my opinion. So we decided to make a transition and I believe, at least for me, I believe that if you're going to put your best work forward with your employment 
you should have passion and love for what you do for your product. And I looked at what else do I enjoy? I love music. I love radio. I've always been a, a passionate radio listener. But what else do I love? I love wine. And I, I decided to, to make that transition. So I started working at a little wine store in Forest Hills, Queens, the wine room. It's called, and I, I worked there and, and learned a little bit about the business. And thankfully for me, the um, owner's husband was a big player in the wine wholesaling in New York City, and uh, he he got me started, showed me the ropes, and gave me some uh, some details on how to get a gig in the business. And then I moved back home to Chicago and took a gig with a really small wine wholesaler with the dumbest name you ever heard, Winorama. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> And um, you know what? You say yeah, wine Dan. When you say winorama, it should come with the sound uh, of a slide whistle, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a delight song, right? Yeah, it's silly. <laughs> so, um, you know, the listeners are falling asleep already. So, I worked part time for this winorama company while working full time uh, doing uh, radio promotion for uh, Universal Republic Records. And that was the last time I worked in the music business. And that's when I met Carl. Carl and his wife at the time, Lulu, had a cool little restaurant called Between on Division Avenue in Wicker Park. And they were nice enough to buy wine for me. They bought a lot of wine for me. <laughs> and, and I learned a lot about uh, just the day-to-day -day business. Uh, so, Carl, thank you for that part of that education. And here we are, what, 13 years later in Hawaii. No. It's great. Yes. Yeah, no, uh, thank you, Dan, because the one thing that I will always take from that, um, from that whole experience is the, honestly, the people that we've met that you can't forget, like yourself, right? Oh, very like, no, seriously. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, you know, you were always, we, Lance and I wanted to chat with you, you know, when I would tell stories and we were just, then that's how this podcast um, it was kind of born, you know, at, we would just kind of sit around this table and just tell stories or, you know, uh, impart wisdom and knowledge and experience and ridiculous stuff to people who were there to just listen. And um, invariably, Dan, a lot of those stories revolved around that restaurant and wine and booze, right? So, you had some um, characters in that building, man. I still remember Isto. Oh my God! Yeah, uh, I still see him once in a while on on social media. Just, I'm just it's kind of, I mean, it's like this—he hasn't changed at all, doing the same thing. And then your so, chef Radica went on to be on Top Chef. Yes, and which is a, one of my stories as well, because even though I wasn't on the show myself, it was just drama uh, on its own, trying to trying to navigate what she was doing and all of the notoriety from that show. And what happened with her? I, I, you know, so going on years down the road, a couple years down the road, I started to call on the folks that owned um, Hubbard Inn and mm -hmm. a few of those downtown restaurants, and they had worked for her. And I went in thinking I would have a shoe in because I I knew Radica from your restaurant. So I walked right. in with my business card and my portfolio, eager Beaver salesperson. I'm like, I know Radica. Certainly, you will give me an audience. And they said, Oh, you know her. Well, let me know when you see her next because we want to call the police. And I'm like, okay. Um, I'm going to try a different introduction next time. The, the, you know, the Radica Chronicles. Um, I don't know. It's I, to say experience is just it, it cheapens it. You know what I'm saying? It's like you kind of know a little bit about everything out there, but wine out of all the spirits, that's your true, uh, I guess, passion. Yeah, yeah, I'm a wine drinker, a wine lover. Um, you know, I'm not a master small yet. I don't pretend to be. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. respect for those that have dedicated their lives to that pursuit. I'm not one of them. But I do know, I know my way around wine, and I know my way around the wine business a little bit. But, you know, expert is a tricky word. Show me an expert, I'll show you a fool. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? I did. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I know, I, it was I, like I, a PT Barnum. No, a guy I worked for, uh, Andy Pates, who co-owner of Cream Wine Company, one of the top independent boutique wine distributors in uh, Chicago, would use that expression mm. a lot. And I learned a great deal from Andy. And uh, that's that's one of the, the takeaways there. Is you know another thing he would say, which which uh, relates to this, is you know don't get high on your own supply. Meaning you know settle down before yeah. you fall down. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. No, and um, you know, being being here in Hawaii, it's kind of funny. You know, being in the food and beverage industry in the Midwest, where you where you think it's a little more robust, um, and having friends, you know, who own restaurants, uh, you know, on the East Coast, I have been able to. I have access to more amazing chefs with more notoriety, and you know, I've already had numerous encounters with you know. Uh, the highest level uh, sommeliers that there could be, right? Because there's three in Hawaii, right? You got Patrick. There's three. Roberto, <laughs> three and, in and there should be four. I mean, but he got he got yes. ripped off. He totally got ripped off, and that is a sham. And I honestly, I will say this on record: the court should be ashamed of themselves. They allowed fraud. You know what? They allowed cheating, and they punished the people that were not involved. And I, Dan, it's you're wrong. You're, you're actually. You're actually, um, I love this, but what are you talking about? And we need to know <laughs> what, what happened. So um, <clears throat> two years ago, almost, it was actually, it was two years ago, October. Um, the test for the master sommelier is mm-hmm. grueling. It is very difficult. There's three components. Yes. And one of the components, which is the blind tasting, was compromised. Meaning. How? how- Compromise. One of the master sommeliers that was a proctor for the exam leaked the wines to some of the students. Mm. And that's my problem with the court. It is, is the, the curriculum and the testing is not structured formally like, say, if you're going to take the bar exam. Correct. When you, take, when you sit down, when you sit for the master, uh, the, the, for the court of master sommeliers, that test is whatever those master sommeliers that are proctoring your exam thought to ask you. It's not standardized. Hmm. So therefore, it can be compromised. Oh. Yes. Uh, and it, is there actual proof that the information was provided to the yes. students? To the test takers? Yes. Oh. And what the court did is they banned that particular master. I don't remember his name. He was in San Diego, SoCal somewhere. Um, and he's banned forever. He's, he's removed from the court. And and cannot use the word sommelier professionally going mm-hmm. forward, which is tricky because the word sommelier is kind of out there, like engineer. You know, right. you could be those idiots running around calling themselves water sommeliers now. It's not, reg, it's not regulated, like I like to say doctor, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. at any rate, so this particular person leaked what some of the wines were going to be in the blind tasting component to some of the candidates, and it was found out. And what the court did is they threw out the results of the entire cohort. Young, sharp kid from Kauai, first generation American born. He's a fantastic guy. And he studied his ass off. He, uh, Chuck Furia, Furia uh, here in Hawaii was his mentor. And, and uh, he had the highest score in his advanced test a, a year earlier of anyone that took it. And then a year later, he sits for the master, he passes, and then two weeks later, it turns out some other people cheated, and he, his master uh, um, pin was revoked, was taken away. So oh, imagine so you, can't... you sit for the bar exam, and someone you've never met cheats, and they take it away from you. That's wrong. He can't, he can't take it again? He has taken it again, and he has a pass. And here's, think about the mental preparation for the biggest test you're going to take in your life. And yeah. the curriculum changes or the, the, the testing changes every time. So it's mm. you build up to that moment and you put it all on the table. And yep. it's and it's so much of a yep. mental thing. I think that you could use I, I hate the game of golf, but there's a lot of analogies there. Like it's it's a mental <laughs> game. You know how to swing that right. stupid club, but your head gets mm-hmm. in the way. He knows wine more than anyone I dealt with in my life. And it was taken away. Um, so I, I, I do not like how the court handled that. And I think it is a stain on their reputation. Wow. Uh, so, so Dan, could you, could you walk us through what exactly does it take with, for that level three? What, what are the steps? Like, what is it? Is it a one day thing? Is it a week thing? Um, well, well, I don't know anything about it. Can we start at level one? <laughs> like what, like what is, I don't even, yeah. So I, Dan, just to preface this, I don't know anything about one. I watched uh, sour grapes. I watched bottle shock yesterday and I drink it, but I'm like, I don't know the difference between, well, red and white that that's about it so i know what a sommelier is i just don't 
exactly know the levels and stuff like that. Okay, so the Quartermaster Sommeliers was born out of, I believe, an organization of butlers in the United Kingdom. And these are people that um, sought to formalize and elevate wine service. And it's really more service oriented than some of the other tracks you can take when it comes to the knowledge of wine. For example, to be a master of wine, that's much more academic. You're going to spend a lot more time writing and learning about farming and mm. the tips and the regionality and the word that we use in wine a lot, which is terroir, which is a French word that we don't have an English translation for. But ultimately, it would be the sum of all environmental factors that would affect how wine will taste from the soil to the wind to the duration of sun to the diurnal shift of daytime temperature and nighttime temperature all the way down. Wow. Uh, in the quartermaster sommelier, you focus much more on service and the, the, the concept of tipsicity, meaning if I pour you Chablis from this particular vintage, does it taste like Chablis from this particular vintage, which would then say that the winemaker, the vigneron, could make changes or could have behavior in the cellar during the winemaking process that could rob a wine of its tipsicity. Wow. Does this also does this also factor into how much a wine is uh, costs at retail or perceived no. cost? No. The, the, in the court, again, it's that chase, that, that, that pursuit of tipsicity. So if I taste a wine blind and I say, and I can identify it as being, you know, whatever it happens to be, 2015 Chablis, that means the winemaker has done his or her job correctly, has captured what that wine should be. Uh, That's oh, the I study. Oh, so you okay. can then find a wine that is 2015 Chablis that doesn't taste like it, but that means the winemaker did something either in the vineyard or in the cellar um, to steer it that way. So you're saying, so if you, so there's a scene in, in bottle shock where the, uh, I mean, they're hustling the the people in the bar, but that guy, uh, Gustavo is able to um, tell when or what, what vineyard the wine was from and the year and all that. So is that what you're talking about? Like he can, if you're able to pinpoint it, that's what tipsicity is. Exactly right. Got it. Yeah. And that's what happened yeah, in this that, How realistic is that? Oh, so that's realistic. So there are people out there that can nail it down like that. Absolutely. You should be master sommelier. <laughs> that's that's very sad. Yeah. That's a talent. It's an incredible talent. Um, you know, there's two movies about it. What are they called? Some some and Psalm 2 in the bottle that follow these people during their, their lead up to their testing. And it is a 24 seven pursuit. This is no phony baloney. Um, it is, it is a full time job plus to dial in your tasting ability to, to be able to do that. And it's not a party trick. I really do believe it as a talent and a learned skill. You need both. You need to have the talent to do so. And then you need to hone that skill, like a Michael Jordan or whatever sports analogy. You have natural talent that your mama gave you, and then you need to develop it. Wow. Uh, speaking of which, um, uh, here in Hawaii, out of all of those um, four potential names, uh, which one would you would be the uh, LeBron of um, of tasting wine? You know, I, 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 I I'm not going to go there. But I'll tell you this, the most influential, and I would say one of the most influential master mm. sommeliers in the western part of the United States is Chuck Fruya, a former partner uh, in Vino and um, Sansei restaurants. And I'll tell you why. He oh. was one of the first Americans to pass the MS test. Not just Hawaiians, Americans. And... His influence oh, brought it home for the U S home and he's Hawaiian and he's not white. You know, that, that was, and mm -hmm. I'll say it, that that was a rarity. So, you know, yeah. here's this, this, uh, you know, Japanese Hawaiian guy rolling up and very, very talented. And Chuck's, like I said earlier, um, the court is more focused on service as opposed to the academics. 
And Chuck is that person. He, his table side manner and working with guests and talking about wine, he's never snooty. He's never hoity toity. And he, he strikes me as someone who doesn't forget that it should be that of enjoyment. Enjoy the wine, enjoy your restaurant experience and don't insult the guests. Yeah. Some people feel like idiots because they don't know as much about wine that you do. Cause guess what? You're a master Somalia. You know more about wine than just about anyone else walking down the street. So if you get joy out of making Correct. someone stupid, then you're, you're an asshole. And, 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 and you, and you <laughs> run into that a lot. And, and I think it's a problem for our business where people are afraid to talk about wine because they'll be made to feel stupid. And that's wrong. Can you imagine you wanted to buy a car and the salesperson said, what do you mean you don't know what rack and pinion steering is? What's your problem? <laughs> that's true. Are you kidding me? You know, so back to Chuck. Chuck um, is, is now retired from his restaurants and um, is still consulting and still is in the game. But he, there's now we're looking into a second generation of, of restaurateurs and wine stewards and sommelier candidates that he has influenced here in Hawaii that shape our restaurant scene from the fine dining at Holly Kalani to the hipster joints in Chinatown. There are students of Chuck Fruya working the floor and selling wine to guests and cultivating wine programs. So I can't give you the LeBron answer, but as far as influence and, and positivity for the wine business and shaping the wine culture in Hawaii, the answer is Chuck, no questions asked. Mm, then that sounds like a, that sounds like the Michael Jordan bet <laughs> to me. That's amazing. Yeah. And thanks for that. Honestly, thank you for that. Yeah. And, appreciate and, that. And one thing, I, another thing I love about Chuck is that Chuck has a love and respect and passion for the central coast of California. So I'm talking about those wine regions that you will find in Santa Barbara County and San Luis Obispo County and Monterey County. And unfortunately in the mm -hmm. world of, you know, if there's a totem pole of respect for American wine regions, not every sommelier would pay the same regard to those regions that Chuck has paid. And you see that when you go to restaurants here, you'll see an abundance of central, central coast wines um, that you would not see elsewhere if you were at a restaurant in, say, Houston or in Portland, Oregon. Um, and that's Chuck. Chuck made friends there and saw the potential of those wine regions as they were coming up, as they were new, as they were the frontier, and planted some, some, uh, some flags with, 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 uh, with some winemakers there. And that's the reason, like, for example, like Jim Clendenin of Aubon Clement, uh, one of the pioneers of uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir production in Santa Barbara County, has such a following here in Hawaii and does custom labels for Alan Wong's and for Roy's because Chuck brought those wines to Hawaii and said, hey, there's something really cool going on in Santa Barbara County. It's new. It's developing. Check it out. And 30 years later, we're still enjoying those wines at a disproportionate level compared to our other uh, fine wine markets. Mm -hmm. You know, Lance had a couple of questions uh, when, now that we're talking about, um, you know, where, where grapes are grown and we're talking about like Santa Barbara and Napa. Uh, Lance, you had a couple of questions about your, that I couldn't answer um, about Napa. Yeah, well, right? so I, watching, um, it got me, or Basha. yeah, it got me really interested in that, um, so I, you know, I watched the movie, the California wines win. And I look at the history of competitions that happened after. And it seems like the American wines won all of them, or at least the ones on Wikipedia that, that kind of followed that structure. So what, what's your, what's your take on why these American wines, I like guess Napa Valley or American wines in general are, are winning these competitions? Are they, are they better in your opinion or, or what's there? Why are they winning? That is a loaded question. Very loaded <laughs> and very tricky and difficult to, um, to navigate because we're going to get into the politics of flavor profile. Mm, okay. And you're going to get into the parkerization of winemaking and the Michelle Roland influence in winemaking. Mm. Um, it sounds like someone just started a van. Yeah. Okay. No, okay. No, so how about, how about coming, <laughs> but, but like, I'll, no, I'll, coming I'll get from into a... it. Yeah, please, please do. Yeah. So many would say, and myself included, that there were two factors at play there. Um, for one, there may have been complacency among French winemakers. 
mm-hmm. meaning that a lot of the seller practices were leaving, had room for improvement. Let's put it that way. Um, what they did in California is the weather in Napa is more consistent and more reliable than the weather in Burgundy and the weather in Bordeaux. The struggle in Burgundy and the struggle in Bordeaux, especially during these times and leading up to 1970s, 1980s, is to achieve ripeness. They struggle to achieve ripeness of the grapes. And in Napa, that's not a problem. You can achieve ripeness every day, every year. And so with that, the wines in Napa, when put against wines from France, were more immediately enjoyable because there was more ripeness. So they had slightly, potentially slightly higher alcohol levels, higher levels of extraction, and were more obvious. The flavors were more obvious. And in a blind tasting, when you're looking at what is better, what do I like more right now? The California wines are going to, quote unquote, jump out of the glass. Does that mean they have more nuance? Does that mean they have more ageability? Does that mean they express terroir? No. It means they are more immediately enjoyable. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't mean that to sound left-handed at all. But in a blind tasting environment, if you're looking at what do I like right now, I'm not surprised that California wines were able to immediately please the taster. Right. And then carry that forward. Um, Let's take a, I'm I'm not going to pick on anyone, but there's a, you know, a marquee Napa Cabernet. It's one of the marquee wines, one of the more popular Napa Cabernets. If you look at their wines from the 90s, they're 12.5 alcohol. If you look at them now, they're 14.5. And that is. Over, over how many, over, over how many years has that, did that take place? It started Carl with the 1997 vintage in Napa. That was the year that changed everything. That was like the second change. You had your, your Spurrier tasting in Paris, 1977, right? Um, and then, then the 1997 yep. uh, vintage in Napa. And there are those now that... So yeah, you're saying... Oh, so, I was going to say, so it's, so it's by design? Like they, this is how they have decided to um, create their wine? Just Yes. To, so they can sell their wine. So Robert Parker, the wine writer and Marble Red Smoker from Baltimore, really likes ripe, opulent, over-the-top wines. And the 1997 vintage in Napa was a ripe, over-the-top vintage. And he came out pounding the drum saying, this is what good wine tastes like. And I'm going to give these wines 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100 points. And the wine consumer in the throws of the dot-com boom responded and winemakers that weren't mm-hmm. on the party looked around and said wait a minute my wine did not get 98 points i'm not able to double my price i don't have people knocking down my door right i'm gonna look over the fence what did they do oh they let their fruit hang longer to the sugar went through the roof mm-hmm. they they let their wine go straight into brand new oak barrel to give it that christmasy spicy flavor and they got 98 points and they're able to sell their wine and buy a nice new Mercedes. I'm going to do that too. <laughs> Let, can I ask you something, Dan? Okay. Sure. Novice like me. Right. And this is something I've, I've asked Carl before, but, um, or I asked Carl that I was going to uh, ask you F- from a novice point of view, I don't have the, the palate where I can taste the nuances and, and this and that I, I, you know, more or less, I just want the flavorful, good wine. Would you say that, like a Napa Valley wine might be the one that I should probably go for, at least in the beginning, because the flavor is so, I guess, like sharp and and out there. That's a tricky one because, I mean, Napa's a big place and there are hundreds and hundreds of wines. Uh, (laughs) Um, And I don't mean to dodge your question there, Lance. Yeah, no, no, I I understand. What I like to do when I'm getting someone into wine is I like to ask them questions about what kind of flavors do they enjoy. Mm. You know, a common one would be like, do you like Skittles or dark chocolate? Oh, okay. I got and then that. I'm going to take them down that path. So, so Lance, Skittles or dark chocolate? Mm. Uh, I, I like both, but I'll, I'll go with dark chocolate. You like dark chocolate. Okay, how about uh, steak or lamb? Steak. 
Okay, okay. Um, so now I've got you. I'm thinking of a domestic Merlot. I'm going that direction. Something that's going to have some leafy spice, but still some fruit for you to enjoy. Not entirely stemmy, like if we went to uh, Bordeaux wine from France, where there's going to be a stronger leafiness to it, uh, more leafy green flavors. But you, I'm thinking you may not want something that's super ripe and over the top. And then we'll right. go from there. So to answer your question, um, starting in Napa is, of course, a great place to start because there's tremendous variety. Mm-hmm. And because the price points those wines command, there is an expectation and a dedication to quality. Wow. That if you're going to put Napa Valley on your label, you've spent money on land and you've spent money on fruit. Mm-hmm. It's some of the most expensive, it's some of the most valuable agricultural land on the planet. Oh, so it's just, it's so basically, it's just a good place to start. And then you can like dive deeper into it. Yeah, but you're going to pay for it. It's not the best value, <laughs> but you're going to pay for it. It costs no, money. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's that's what I was talking about. I was trying to explain that this earlier this morning, Daniel. So it's like, yeah, if, if we're talking about like the price of wine, but you know, it what are you paying for? It's not that it's better. It's like you're paying for the land and everything that it took to grow <laughs> all of those things. It's kind of like the the labor right behind it. Uh, not not trying to oversimplify it no for sure um but honestly lance i would encourage you to start in france and i'll tell you why the world of wine globally is a wheel that spins off of france now the italians will tell you that the romans taught winemaking to the french and to that i'll say okay that was a long time ago (laughs) and and the, the french have run with it they're in good shape um when you look when you look at winemaking anywhere else in the world Anywhere, I don't care where you are, if you're in Chile, if you're in Spain, if you're in, uh, uh, what's that silly little island, uh, Tasmania, off the coast of Australia, um, they are taking their cues from France. You can't say that about Italy. You can't say that about Spain. You can't say that about Germany. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you, you could go to Oregon and you would find someone who is trying to make a really world-class Riesling in, in the, uh, by the example set forth by the Germans. That certainly exists. Of course it does. But that's one. Down the street are 50 other people taking their cues from France. So when you look at our grape varietals, that you, look at your, you go to your wine list at, at, at your restaurant or you walk down the halls of uh, Fujioka's or Tamura's, you see Pinot Noir, French. Chardonnay, French. You see Cabernet Sauvignon, French. You say Malbec, French, right? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, there may be uh, one weirdo making Sangiovese in California, <laughs> taking taking a cue from the Italians. Yay right. for you. It, but mathematically, it's the French who are running this program, and there's for good reason. They have a thousand-year head start on anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you go to Burgundy and look at how that – beautiful small place has been divided up into little tiny sections to where a section the size of my backyard has its own name and the fruit grown there will give you a wine that tastes different than the fruit grown you know a kilometer down the road or 50 feet down the road nowhere else in the world has that yeah because the french had a thousand years to get it dialed in and the monks that started that made wine in burgundy identified those little differences and then it's not just Burgundy. You travel 100 miles south into the Rhone and you see how different the soil is from one parcel in Gigandas to the next because the stratification of the soil there is vertical instead of horizontal. It's incredible. And then you travel even further to the south. You get the Mediterranean and you get the Bandol and they're making this incredible rosé and the soil is different there and different grapes grow and they're able to make these different kinds of wines. And we've only done a day trip in the car and we've seen an incredible variety in what those wines can be and what the earth can give, what the earth can channel an expression to how these grapes are grown. There's no one, no one else has that. And that's why the world of wine takes that influence from France. Yeah. So, so Lance, go to France, start to France. I, I, well, yeah, I've, I've been there a few <laughs> times. I've never left the city, but I, I guess I'm missing a lot. Well, now, I mean, I am, I am genuinely interested in wine. It's just a whole world to take in you know I, i'm just i'm in baby steps right now yeah and, and with with that said um 
I know one of Lance's more burning questions was uh, a guide to beginners um, potentially on a date or in a social gathering. Because Dan, obviously you have like just this wealth of knowledge uh, technically and historically speaking, you know, about wine and the grapes. And, you know, later on, I do want to ask, you know, what you think about Cabernet just because it's the most planted grape in the world. Like, is it the cheat grape? But we'll get into that later. Um, uh, Lance in his starter guide to like asking about wine in restaurants. Like, how do you, uh, yeah. What was your question? Let's use this. How do you sound like you know what you're talking about? How do you feel? How can you feel confident when asking for a wine, maybe a, a bottle, you know, for a, for a, a table of guests uh, without sounding pretentious or right? Yeah. Is that that's kind I of mean, what you're looking you know, date to ask, or right? a gathering with people? How, what should I ask or what should I order? Or what, what's the process you think in order to look somewhat knowledgeable, but not look like a noob? If that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so there's a little trick that any skilled wine steward or your average server at a restaurant with a legitimate wine program should be dialed in on Lance. And here's what you do. In your mind, you should know what you want to spend. And in my opinion, at a restaurant, given the markup they need to take, if you want something of note, you're going to want mm-hmm. to start around 75 to 70 to $80. Okay. For a bottle of wine, which sounds like a lot, but there's five glasses of wine in there. And now we're running around paying $15, $18 for a cocktail. It's not no, that makes bad. Makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes sense. So Lance, here's what you do. You get your wine list and you find a bottle of wine. It doesn't matter what it is. That's at the price point you want. Mm-hmm. The steward comes over. You say, I'm enjoying the lamb. My date is having the uh, escargot. And I had something like this in mind. And you point at the wine that has a price point that you want to pay. Okay. I had something like this in mind. Could you guide us, please? Uh, he or she says, okay, he wants to spend $90 on a bottle of wine. They're ordering mm-hmm. these two things. I'm going to point them towards something that's in that price point, but that fits what they're ordering. That's the trick. That's the wink. So you don't say, I only want to spend $90. What's good? Right. I love that. I love that. I love that. I'm here to help. Now, what if you want? Now, what if you want to talk about your choice? Um, How would you be able to talk about what you've chosen? Like, you know, if your table has said, "Oh, that's interesting." Why do we go with that? How do you talk about your choice that you made? Yeah, or a, or as a group of people, once the coast is clear, obviously, right? Once we're able to like not be outside and freely like just you know breathe each other's would, air I mean, inside I, a restaurant. Before Dan answers, I would just go to the restroom and Google what I just ordered. <laughs> come back with like there's a wealth of so this was a nineteen you know da, 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 whatever. Yeah. Anyways, I, I would go with Lance. Yeah, I mean, if you try to you know bullshit <laughs> you're gonna get caught carl i mean come on you know, say, i don't know anything about wine that's why i asked the guy who knows how's the weather you know <laughs> see i had a I, see I there you go there you go easy my friend he's gonna listen to this but i we've been friends since middle school and for my 30th birthday we went to vegas and um and he he went to napa valley once okay like a couple months before this trip so we're at STK, the steakhouse, and he came off like he was a master sommelier, and it was so annoying. He was like, I think he was, well, he was a little drunk too, but he was just like making stuff up, and he's talking with the sommelier like he knows everything, and I just, I, I always picture that, and I'm like, I cannot ever be that guy. I don't ever want to be, be that, that guy. <laughs> well, yeah, and no, no one likes a phony, you know? Yeah, you know, um, and, and, I, and I'm with you on that one. It's um, and, and that can be really irritating in any area of life, not just wine. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and again, that gets back to what I was talking about with Chuck and Chuck Furio, which is I really like his tableside manner, and that you know, let's invite you to participate in the world of wine instead of shaming you for not being here already. Mm. That's my whole thing. Yeah, you know there. 
there, there was a time, I'm, you know, my, I'm going to want to say it's uh, maybe 2000, God, just like 2002, 2003, when that mentality started changing. Because for, I know for a long time, um, you know, you held this, if you knew something about wines, then it's, it's sort of like you uh, walked a little bit higher, right? It's kind of like uh, being a vegan today. It's just like, I'm better than you. Right. <laughs> it's like, I, uh, I'm a little bit more knowledgeable than you and I'm a little bit, so they can be a little, a little more snooty, if you will, uh, about their knowledge of wine. And then that, that changed the, the perception had to change, uh, especially in the food and beverage industry. So I'm, my guess is like around early two thousands because it was pushing people away. This whole, um, I don't know, putting it up on a pedestal, uh, the, the airs that people get when it comes to their knowledge oh, of wine. Certainly it was seen. I mean, there's that expre- expression, right? You've got champagne taste on a beer budget or whatever. Um, <laughs> And I I think it comes (laughs) from the fact that wine as compared to other alcohol is, is seemingly more expensive. So therefore it was enjoyed in nice restaurants and people with money had it. So if you knew about wine, so therefore you must have exposure to um, higher achieving individuals or families with generational wealth. Otherwise, how could you possibly know anything about wine? And therefore, Mm -hmm. if you don't know of anything about wine, then you're the whole polloi, right? So, and I'm glad that, yeah. because I've said this before and I've said it a million times, wine is fermented grape juice. And if you're a jerk about it, you're a jerk. It's that simple. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and let's not forget that. And anyone that gives you a hard time is just an asshole. And I, I, I got no time for people like that, but I'm in the world of selling wine. I want more people to drink wine. I'm people to buy wine. So I do have some skin in the game, right? Right. And the more people drinking wine, yep. whether you're having a canned wine with your burger or you're having <laughs> a beautiful bottle of wine on an anniversary or a special occasion, great. And that's what's great about wine is it's the depth is there. You can find a bottle of wine that's enjoyable for nine ninety nine on the shelf at tomorrow's. It can be done. Um, and if that's your alcohol for the evening, great. And then if that leads you into, you know, on the 21st birthday of your firstborn, having something really spectacular to open, great. You can enjoy it. What I'm trying to say is you can enjoy wine at the beach and you can enjoy it on the greatest, most special day of your life. There you go. I think think that answered a lot of questions, too, because, you know, I know, uh, you know, the perception is just like anything that we spend our money on, uh, you naturally think, the higher the price, the better it's going to be. But then, uh, you know, we're, we have to go back and define that word better. What does better mean, right? And what you're saying is um, you can find delicious things at every end of the spectrum. How do you go about well, finding that? Them, that's the hardest thing in anywhere in life, right? Um, so I, I, I believe it's good to have a relationship with a wine retailer. And whether you like to shop at Fujioka or Tamura's or Vintage Wine Cellar or our field, there are people there that cultivate those shelves. And that's not to say you can't find a nice bottle of wine at Safeway. You certainly can. But there's no one there working the aisles who's going to help you and remember you from last time. But if you go to any of our independent – and over on Big Island, you got some great options. you got four awesome options on Big Island. You've got three or four really good options over on Kauai, on Maui. There are people that cultivate this and you go in and they'll remember you. Oh, Hey Carl, welcome back. How did you like that? Whatever you bought last time. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I want to go deeper with that producer. I want to go deeper in that region or know what, you know, I didn't like that. It was a bit too sour for my taste or it was a little too rich for my taste. Okay, well let's, let's go this way this time. And that's, that's how I started. And um, I mean, I remember shit, this was 1998 I was in Austin, Texas. I was 24, 25 years old, and I shopped at Grapevine Market, and my guy there, his name was Lee. And he remembers he me. Still re- his name was, remember you still I, remember his name? I, if he walked in the room, I'd say, hi, Lee, how are you? I remember him, like the, the, like the back of my hand. And he, he, oh, hey, guys, welcome back. How did you like that bare boat Pinot? It was great, Lee. Thank you. What else do you have like that? Why don't you try it this time? Why don't you try this one this time? 
and you go from there. And my wife and I would write it down and save labels. And there was a wine log and all this and that. And, <laughs> and that's how you start. So you need to have a relationship with someone who knows what they're talking about and is fun and will mm-hmm. listen and remember you. And you, that's very easy to have because guess what? Anyone who's working in wine retail has surrendered the option of having a lucrative lifestyle. There's not a lot of money to be made. <laughs> they're, they're passionate about Either it. They're in for the right. love of the game, Lance. That's why they're there. That's awesome. And develop that relationship and just start. I've got 20 bucks. I want something that's great. I'm making a steak. Okay, here you go. Boom. Come back next week and you build from there. I've had only one. So I've been to three or four wine tastings ever. And two of them were at a place called Hazard. Have you guys been there? Of course. I'm sure you guys well, have been Hazard, there. Hazard, yeah. But yeah. And and the gentleman there is amazing. I, the first time I went with a couple of coworkers and I was totally, uh, I, I didn't know what to expect. I thought it was going to, I didn't know what to expect. I thought it was going to be over my head. And he did exactly what you've been talking about. He kind of led you, told you a little bit about the history and kind of lowered the walls. And then like, kind of like what you said earlier, it's just, it just fermented grape juice. He made it just a lot less um a lot more approachable and he made it really enjoyable actually really enjoyable yeah great uh you know great um great folks like that who actually sell wine and do it well they they're able to take the the pretense out of it and make you make you feel at ease like Oh, I know. I can follow you. I can follow along what you're laying down, and I don't feel like a dummy now. I can actually sit down and just like it and drink it and taste it for what no, it exactly is. Exactly. Right? So, and if you find yourself liking Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa, well, then you can retrace its roots to Bordeaux, or you can see, okay, well, what else are they doing with Cabernet Sauvignon in the Central Coast? What are they doing with Cabernet Sauvignon in Washington? Um, what are they doing with Cabernet Sauvignon in South America or Australia? Or you can stay in Napa and say, okay, well, what else are they growing in Napa? I like Rutherford. Okay, what is Merlot like? Oh, they grow. They grow Syrah there. Wow, that's interesting. So you can you can go down the rabbit hole of the uh, rabbit hole of the great variety plants, or you can explore a region because those are going to be your two mm. variables that your wine pivots on: the grape varietal, and then where it's grown. Start mm. there, and then you get yeah. into the nuance of winemaking and all this and that. But that's later. Yeah. Yeah, he he was great. He he took you on a mini journey of where where the wine was from, and how it was made without without getting too much into detail. And I thought it was fantastic. Dan, great. I've learned so much. I got to continue it. Maybe next when we have you on again. Hopefully, it's in person if we can. But if we have you on again, I'll have more intelligent questions to ask because I'll know more about what I'm asking. No, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate you guys inviting me. It's an honor. Um, it's my first podcast. So this is exciting for me. Thank you for that. And we didn't even talk about movies. Um, I, I... Who, wait, who's, who's Robert Kamen? Go for Robert it. Robert is a Hollywood screenwriter and he made his name. Somehow he lucked his way into doing this, the, the, he wrote the script or he, he did the screenwriting. So the adaptation from script into the screenplay, he's a screenplay writer for Taps, that early Tom Cruise movie. And he then went on and he um, did a lot of those Taken movies. He wrote the screenplays oh. for those. Yeah, he's a big Hollywood screenplay writer. Anyway, he bought the rights to the Gergich story, which is that 19, the, the Spurrier tasting in Paris. He mm. bought the rights to uh, Mike Gergich's story and is, has been developing this movie for 15 years. In the middle of that, Bottle Shock came out, and Robert, I, I knew Robert at the time because he has a winery in Sonoma, Cayman Vineyards. They make huge, over-the-top Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah. Um, I, and I was emailing with him. This was years ago. This was 08, 09. And I said, hey, Bottle Shock came out. What do you think? And he, and I tried to find the email for you guys. It's long gone. It's probably three computers ago. He went off. And that movie is a bunch of bullshit. 
They didn't include Michael <laughs> Gergich. They changed all the details. They, they, they did not tell the story. And they didn't tell the story because I own the rights to the real story. And someday the real movie is going to come out about Mike Gergich, who was a, a, an immigrant who turned the whole wine industry on its ear. Um, and Robert came in on those also is the first is the only person in my life I've ever spoken to that had marijuana breath. <laughs> Not smoke. He's, he's he when you talk to him, it tastes like he's chewing on marijuana all the time. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, I just I want to interrupt real quick that that movie I felt Alan Rickman saved that movie, in my opinion. I, I told Carl this morning, I, I watched it last night in preparation for this. I felt like that movie didn't do the story any justice. I think it was slow and like just not a great movie. And then you read the, uh, you read about what happened. I'm like, man, they could have, could have done better. It, I feel. I agree with you. I thought it was a crappy movie. I think it, it did more disservice than service to the people, those pioneers in California, uh, that really, um, that what Marty uh, Vinyarski, right, the guy from Chicago, Sagley Wine Cellars. Um, it, it, the real story was lost and it was like a crappy movie that maybe you would enjoy on a flight to Cleveland, but that's it. You know, it's exactly the, not great. Just cinema. to waste time. Yeah. Mm-mm. And it's unfortunate because there's a, the, the, the part, the point that Robert Cameron was trying to make is there's such a great story to be told and they blew it. They missed it. And he's like, someday I will make the film that tells the real story. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, Lance, I hate to say this, I'm glad you didn't like the movie. No, it was, it was. Ter- I was telling Carl, I was like, the love story is like super weird. The there was a lot of storylines that kind of didn't make sense, or they didn't end or begin well, and and then the whole point about the wine, I felt like they were. I, they did a whole disservice to something that was such a big deal. I felt, and I, without Alan Rickman, I would have. I I thought about stopping the movie halfway, but I was like, oh no, there's going to be some kind of cool part, and it never, <laughs> never really came up until the end when they won. But you knew, kind of knew that was going to happen. Well, and also some of that just didn't happen about him being at work at the bank, and all of a sudden the wine goes clear. You know, the tartites fall out, and he's like, oh look, look, you know. It, it, it that didn't happen. It, it, so so is so is the movie it, is is your friend is Robert Kamen is he making the movie or, or planning on actually telling the real story? Well, we we're not in contact anymore. He was a colleague at the time, so I couldn't call him a friend. Mm-hmm. That'd be wrong. Um, I don't know. Her. I mean, I, I in preparation for this, I did a quick look to see how that's going. And the last um, news article about this film in Wine Business was like dated 2015. Um, so who knows where, of course yeah exactly so who knows where it's yeah, going COVID. so no. i i mean i don't know but i mean it's been a project for over a decade to, to tell this story it, yeah it needs to be it needs to be told in a way that re- like gives it i mean I, I read that the bottle the original chateau chateau montelena Montelay, yeah montelena it's actually in the smithsonian one of the bottles from the first taste testing because it's like such a big deal. Oh, it's it's huge. And yeah, you know, and they made this and they made this awful movie. It has like a forty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's generous. And, dis- and I think that's and that's high. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, Lance, it, it was a terrible. The real movie. story is just read the Judgment of Paris. It's a well written book, uh, and it tells the whole story of the people that made those incredible wines that changed history and really legitimized American winemaking. That's that's okay. the judgment book. of Paris. Yeah, that's the book to read. Yeah. All right, I got that. Judgment of Paris. Carl, are you still there? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I'm still here. No, uh, yeah, this I, is I, great. I saw the movie and I was <laughs> excited about it. I saw the. I don't always believe in Rotten Tomatoes, but you know, I'll, I'll look at the Rotten Tomatoes score before I watch a movie just to kind of gauge. You know, like if it's a zero percent, I'm probably not going to watch it. But if it's like they gave, sorry, I'm going off track. But like Dumb and Dumber has like a 20%. And I think that's totally blasphemous. That movie should have like a, a hundred, but I get it. But this movie had a 43%. I'm like, ah, maybe people don't like wine. And I watched it and I was like, man, this is the exact opposite from how cool Sour Grapes was. Sour Grapes really got me into wine because I was fascinated with how much, you said you got 
halfway through, but like the main guy, how much he knew about a certain thing that he could fool other people. I thought that was pretty amazing. There's a book about that too. Um, the uh, it's Millionaire's Vinegar. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's such a good. Name. <laughs> it focuses a lot on it's a good the, title. Uh, the Thomas yeah, Gabbard good title. Points. Oh, are those the one? I think that was in the movie where they. If correct me if I'm wrong, they because so in the movie Sour Grapes, they uh, one of the Coke brothers, Coke brother, I don't know Coke. Yeah, the Coke brothers in Florida. He he spent like I want to say half a million dollars on Thomas Jefferson wines or one of those guys back then, and then they found out they were all fake. Is that what it's about? It, it's yes, correct, and it's um, yeah. It, you, you get into, um, for me, those are the real experts, those people that assess auctions and auction mm-hmm. lots. That Those yeah. are the real experts to be able to like test the glue and the capsule and the paper and to know that, you know, so-and-so did not bottle magnums in that year to find those counterfeits. That, yeah, that's, that's that incredible. was amazing. Yeah, I mean, there was one where they, they mentioned in the movie, they were like, oh, one of the labels was using Elmer's glue, but Elmer's glue wasn't invented till 1940-something. And they're like, this was supposed to be bottled in 1920. I was like, wow, that is amazing. No, I was, I was going to say that was amazing that there's like forensic people for bottles of wine. Oh, man, that's a whole <laughs> new series. No, I for real. But that's a real deal. Like I, um, a, a friend yeah. of mine for many years was the cellar uh, master for Hart Davis Hart which outside of Sotheby's was the biggest wine auction house. And they're based in Chicago, Carl. And he would tell stories of what would happen like in the middle of, uh, in the middle of an auction, they'd, they'd have wines up there. What do they call that? What's the word for that in the auction where they, on the auction block, I guess, um, where like in an auction, a cork would fall down into the wine was being displayed vertically. <laughs> and then the whole lot is called into question. Was this wine stored properly? What is the provenance of this wine? Um, and it is serious because there are yeah. major, major dollars on the line. Major. Um, and then a friend of mine at Somali in Chicago yeah. who bought for a restaurant group, bought a lot of wine through auction and has great stories about um, the, the, the phantom bidders online and where this money is coming from. And how we've seen just this incredible escalation of wine, of wine prices at, at auction for no reason other than people want what they can't have. Mm. That makes that makes yeah, sense. No. I mean, I, I remember. Wow. Uh, so I've, I've watched Sour Grapes now three times, and and one of the the things that the main guy Rudy was doing is uh, apparently not only was he making fake wines, and and that's eventually his downfall. But he was buying tons of wine in order, I guess, to make his own wines um, more rare, I guess, and to kind of make them seem greater or something like that. But apparently he had changed the whole wine um, auction industry, or at least at the time, because he was just purely buying up everything. Well, it's a smart idea. You buy it all so you know how to fake it, and then you corner the market. You take everything that's legit. (laughs) <laughs> off all out of the marketplace and then reintroduce the fake it's it's not that complex but it's genius right no it was it was genius and that, i mean that's it's kind of weird that that documentary got me into it because i realized how and no it's, it's so funny because it, it got me so into the complexity of wine with every you know all these people that were frauded by him you know they were like direct like hollywood directors and celebrities and all these rich people and they're sitting there and they're saying you know i've had the real thing before and i know the complexities wine from rudy and it was the same you know or it was the same enough it it fooled them and i was like man if you can take it yeah if you are as are as knowledgeable as he is about how you can make a formula of cheaper wines and make this wine that uh, that's amazing i mean he's obviously talented and then I, was, then I got more into it. I was like, wow, there's a whole complex world of wine. It's not just it's not just a drink, an expensive drink. There's much more to it. And then I kind of got into it and started reaching out to Carl and another coworker about wine. And still a novice, but this is 
this is helpful for sure. Well, Lance, we welcome you. Another good one to watch would be, <laughs> um, it's called Red Obsession. Um, strangely enough, um, who's the um, narrator? Russell Crowe is the narrator in this documentary. I don't know why. Red Obsession. Yeah. Oh, I see it. Yeah. It's, it's about. Um, oh, I've seen this. Um, <laughs> you know, what's funny is I've seen this thumbnail before. I didn't know it was about wine. I thought it was a horror movie. I just never. <laughs> I've seen it. I just never. I didn't put two and two together. I thought it was like vials of blood. I don't know. I, it just came across. That's a good one too. About how it's really. I mean, it, it it walks very carefully without like being negative or positive, but about how the awakening of wine culture in China has changed the mm. wine game internationally. Like basically, a new player came to the party, and they're they play for keeps, mm-hmm. and they've changed everything. That's that's so funny that you say that because I'm a, so I'm a huge car guy, like huge into any type of car, and when the Chinese there's a lot of companies, um, Rolls Royce, BMW, they now a lot of their sales, especially the really high end cars, the Maybox and stuff like that, a lot of their sales come from China. And I think it kind of correlates to this because now they're making cars that are only made for China. So they'll take like a BMW 7 Series and they'll make it longer because that's a status symbol in China to have longer cars. It doesn't need, I mean, as long as Maybach or Rolls Royce and it's only sold in China and China's now their number one client. It's not North America anymore. And that's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I can imagine that for wine in that they have all this money. How do you show it more or less? And it's, it's interesting also in that, you know, if you look at American culture, um, you know, um, the United States of America was established by European settlers, you know, so we're talking about Thomas Jefferson as a wine collector. So wine mm-hmm. has been a thing for us since the beginning, whereas the same cannot be said for China. So it's new to the culture. And I have picked up on some resentment in the wine business about how the Chinese don't enjoy their wine right. Or they'll buy Lafitte and mix it with Coca-Cola and take shots. <laughs> you hear these stories and it's, it, 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 it's nothing but right. wine no, no. You know, if they bought the wine, they can do what they want. There are no rules. Exactly. Do what you want. Right. But there's a funny scene in that movie where right. there's a guy who made a billion dollars selling dildos. And he's, it's him <laughs> sitting in a room full of fake dicks with his Lafitte. It's great. It's great. Wait, is this in China? This is in China? Or... In China, yeah. He's, a, he's, the, uh, he's the Pablo Escobar of dildos in China, and it, it, he's got all this money. His Lafitte. He's talking about how he made all his money and he spent it on wine simply because he has the money. He's like, I don't even really... Yeah. Hey, he's mean, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, money's yeah, money, like, right? I'm not even sure that I'm really going to drink the wine. I don't care, but I can buy it because I have all this money. I'm, yeah, I, I can I can see if the purists, or, I don't know what, what you call them, if the purists are like, oh, you're not drinking it right. But you're right. I mean, they spent their money. They're helping the wine industry, which is in part helping you, helping them. Let them do whatever they want. Yeah, it's in the same thing, too. I mean, you run into that wine racism, too, where like, you know, where you can't pair wine with Chinese food or you can't pair wine with Japanese food or Indian food. That's simply not true. It just it doesn't follow the traditional wow. lines of mm-hmm. Indian cooking. Right. Um, that you that that you may be used to or most familiar with. Co- that correct. Doesn't mean anything more than that. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> I didn't know there was wine racism based upon like the food. <laughs> oh. There's wine racism too. Like wine buyers, oh, I'm not going to buy Pinot Noir from Chile. Why would I do that? What do they know about making Pinot Noir? But they'll 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 but, really? but they'll you know yeah. bend over backwards <laughs> to buy the the newest hottest thing from Sonoma. Well, Sonoma has a twenty five year head start in Chile. In the world of wine, that's not very much. It's right. very little, you know. So it's 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 interesting. There's a lot of politics and a lot of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for biases toward or mm. favoring certain wineries or certain regions. I think that's the that's the probably the main reason or one of the reasons why I want to be knowledgeable is I don't want to have that bias. I don't you know if I'm in a in a store and the wine from Chile is actually better, but I don't know any better and I'm just like I'm just going to get the French stuff because they make you know they're known for wine. I want to be able to look at it and say 
this one is cheaper, but it's actually better. I think that's where I want to get. I'm not necessarily looking for like super high knowledge. I just kind of want to know what I'm getting into, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great pursuit, but I, I still believe starting yeah, in France yeah. is the place to start. But you may very well end up somewhere else, mm-hmm. but start in France. No, it makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Plus, I know, you know, when you, um, you know, when you go out and when people, if it, when people talk about wine, you just don't want, you don't want to sound like the bovo <laughs> yeah. at the table who knows nothing. I'll leave you with this, guys. You know, don't ever say Pinot Noir. Uh, <laughs> I would never. I would never. A bunch of dopes. What's the right way to say it, though? I don't know who says that. I just say Pinot because I don't know how to say the second part. Well, see, here's the thing. It's a French word, right? And I don't speak French. Mm-hmm. But when you're in France, I say Pinot Noir. But I, I'm from <laughs> okay. Illinois. You know, I don't, my, I don't say those things. So... Um, I hear people that say that, and then I challenge them, like, okay, well, then how do you pronounce Tempranillo? How do you pronounce, why are you saying Merlot <laughs> instead of Merlot? Yeah. You know, don't, don't, be a, don't be a dope. Right. Right. Just, uh, just is, say, if you're going to say one of the French words, yeah, just right. say yeah. all of them. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, you focus on Noir for some reason. What, what, why are we doing this? Why are you wasting my time? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Then, then you probably have to say with every word that uh, was of a different language. Like, yeah, hey, uh, you guys right? want to go it's out stupid. for some uh, yeah. for some tapas? You know, we have American English pronunciations for foreign words. Yeah, yeah. Car- karaoke is a great example, right? And so don't be, don't be, don't be correct. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, um, I wanted to say thank you so much. Uh, for this because not only did you give us like just a wealth of knowledge, you gave me more information. I'm like, Oh my God, I got to look this up. I have so many notes right now in front of me, which is why I was quiet for such a long time. I got to look that up. I got to look that up. I got to download that on my Kindle. I have to. So thanks for being such a a great guest and being funny and, you know, rekindling some of our, our past memories together. Um, But also, you know, being a, being a fun uh, advocate for the industry and for some of our colleagues. Um, it's been my pleasure. You know, in the Thank wine you guys for having as me. Well. Very, so very we appreciate that. Enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, once again, thanks to Dan Fulick for all the nostalgia as well as sharing his stories and his love of wine. And um, what do we got next? On the next Real Parallels, you're going to hear how a young, scrappy artist uh, turned industrial areas all over the world into his own living art gallery. Jasper Wong on the next Real Parallels.